What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. What's up? This is Chris. So happy to have you with us. A lot to cover, so let me go quick. The biggest thing, the absolute biggest thing I want to say is thank you. I want to say thank you to Marissa. Marissa Y. I'll spare your last name. I don't know how private you want to keep things, but our newest patron. And I just want to remind you all, you know, it's the giving season. If you like what we do, head on over to patreon.com slash smart people podcast for as little as two bucks a month. You can support us and you get access to our guests, which is the second thing I want to say. I want to say thank you to LM. Those are the initials um, for submitting your question this week. Uh, we did ask our guest. And it was an awesome question and it was a really cool answer and it actually fit into the conversation really well. This is just a reminder that if for two or five bucks you support us on Patreon, every time we have a guest, we'll send out a message saying, here's who we're going to interview, here's when, here's what it's about. And you can essentially ask any question you want. So just imagine, you know, our previous conversations on happiness or mindset or leadership or making money or, or this one. If it's in your realm and you want to ask a question, it's simple. That's it. Patreon.com slash smart people podcast. All right. I'm so excited to bring this one to you today. This was a surprisingly incredible interview. We interviewed Kevin Vallier and Kevin is the author of a new book. It's called Trust in a Polarized Age. It just came out. Kevin is an associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green University, where he directs their program in philosophy, politics, economics, and law. So Kevin has his PhD. He also completed his postdoc at Brown University's Political Theory Project. And this is such a timely episode. I mean, you know that we often don't go after the shiny object, right? We didn't do a lot of coverage on COVID or things like that. The reason is you can get a lot of this stuff elsewhere. But I want to take this spin because not only are we talking politics here, but I think we can take a fairly unbiased approach. I mean, clearly I say where my stance is, but I'm always open to learning and modifying it. And so we talk about what's going on in the political world today, the partisanship. Also, what did the founding fathers envision for today? Uh, because that's one of Kevin's areas of expertise. And then, of course, how does trust play a role in all of this? Where did the trust go? Should we trust our institutions today? Should we trust each other? Should we trust our politicians? All things that are on the forefront of our mind. And I hope this will help you see things in perhaps a different light, a new light, or add on to your current light. I'm going to turn it over to Kevin Vallier as we talk about his book, Trust in a Polarized Age. Don't forget smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check us out there. Shoot us an email. And really, tell a friend. 
I mean, we've had some awesome episodes recently. You know, we're in some difficult, uncertain times, and often information is one of the best things to cure that uncertainty. So our previous conversations around mindset and around happiness, and now this one around trust and polarization, it just really, I think, can help us all navigate this year that is 2020. All right. Thanks so much. Here it is. Kevin Ballier, Trust in a Polarized Age. Enjoy. All right. Well, let's do it, Kevin. First, I just want to say thanks so much for, for joining me on the show. I'm, uh, it's an honor to be here. Look, it's like you wrote this book for today. I mean, the title, Trust in a Polarized Age. It's like somebody said, hey, let's define 2020, specifically maybe November 2020. But I imagine, and knowing your history, this has been something on your mind for a while. When did you start this? And why at that time did you want to do it? And uh, how lucky are you that it's now? <laughs> well, on the last point, I, I, I guess I'm pretty fortunate, even if it's not fortunate for the world as a whole. Um, but um, as far as my interest in these topics, uh, they go back to my undergrad days where, it, you know, I was raised a kind of moderate Democrat. I started looking into libertarian thought when I got into college, but I also started to get to know a lot of conservatives. Um, particularly as I started going back to church. And so my life became a constant confrontation with political diversity. So as I say now, I work with progressives, I worship with conservatives, and I spend my time on the internet with libertarians. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I can go through a single day of my life and encounter all these different, you know, political views. And, you know, and so you know, what got me thinking was, was there any way to reconcile folks to one another without insisting that they agree? Uh, and um, my very first book, Liberal Politics and Public Faith, was an attempt to pull this off, this reconciliation project off, uh, particularly between uh, secular liberals and, you know, reasonable citizens of faith, you know, non-theocratic citizens of faith uh, who want to be able to express faith in public life, but don't want to run the government uh, from a faith-based perspective. Um, and then I started to expand the project more broadly uh, over the last five years to try to think about um, what the underlying conditions, social conditions would have to be for people of different ideological perspectives and different religious perspectives to get along. And I started to get attracted to the idea of studying trust, particularly trust in society, which we call social trust and trust in our institutions, um, particularly in government that we call political trust. Because my thought was that even if people disagree about the issues, if they can mostly trust each other to do the right thing most of the time, they can probably find some way to at least temporarily uh, settle certain disputed questions, say, you know, with a democratic procedure of some kind. Uh, and so what it seemed to me was that the problem that we faced with ideological diversity wasn't so much that we disagreed, that's part of it, but it's also that we don't trust each other. And so we ascribe the disagreement to that people are racist or, you know, that people are snobby um, or that, you know, people don't respect us or take us seriously, um, rather than thinking that many of these disagreements are matters uh, of goodwill, but that our perspectives are so different from each other and we're so suspicious that we just can't see that. I, I wonder, one of the things is how much of this has to do with the fact that we talk in absolutes, or at least it seems like we talk in absolutes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How much of that, the problem is very simply that we, we've lost room for nuance. Yeah, I mean, I think this has to do with the collapsing political center, where it's usually the centrists that insist on the nuance and the partisans, you know, are bl more black and white thinkers. So we'd, we'd have to figure out, well, where, you know, where have all the centrists gone? Um, and a lot of this interest at the, the highest levels of, of government, um, you know, have disappeared because there's been a lot of polarization and attitudes among elected officials. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. I think it has to do with increasingly polarized uh, cultural attitudes in the general public. But there's also some mechanisms of polarization at the governmental level that create uh, a lack of moderates. And so when you have few moderates in the culture, um, it becomes a lot easier for the partisans to define the discourse. That's a good point. Because one argument that I think I've clung to for a long time and I've heard often is that, you know, we're really not that divided. It's just we're highlighting the fringes. Based on your research and your understanding, is that actually true? Um, so I, I give a kind of moderate answer on this. There's a lot of polarization at the elite level. 
There's not very much at the uh, level of the masses generally, um, but the more educated and informed you get about politics, the more and the more political power you have, uh, the more polarized you become. So that's that's the general that's the general pattern. Hmm. Um, yeah. So you have to distinguish between the elites and the masses. But, you know, if, if you do, then, um, yeah, you're you're in good shape. So then that begs the question, is the problem and, and again, I think many people assume they know the answer to this, but is the problem that the elites are not doing their job, which is supposed to be represent the masses? Um, yeah, that's a difficult question, because um, on the one hand, if the masses don't really have political commitments, they don't care that much about politics, um, who ought the politicians to represent? Um, and so, you know, and who will they represent, given that only a certain segment of the population is politically active? Um, so a lot of the more polarized members of society are the ones who are going to, you know, make the biggest noise and exert the most pressure on politicians to behave in certain ways. Mm. Um, so, I mean, ideally, the public would be less apathetic. But the problem is that it doesn't actually make sense for the average voter to learn a whole lot about politics because they don't have a really significant effect on the outcome. Um, so I think that on balance, it's a it's a difficult problem because all the incentives are aligned so as to increase polarization rather than decrease it. Interesting. It, and it's also interesting when you talk about the apathy of the average person, because, again, from an outsider's perspective, it seems like, well, we've we have the most people vote in this election. I mean, mm -hmm. there's that, that's not apathy. Um, what is that? Um, it's more apathy about learning about the issues. People do mm -hmm. aren't especially apathetic here about which candidate or group they like. Um, they may like the Democrats or they may like the Republicans, but not necessarily because they know the platforms of the two parties. In fact, that's actually pretty rare. So people are apathetic about you know ideology and for, you know which can be good actually, but um, and they're they're apathetic about particular issues, but they're not apathetic about you know who they want to lead their tribe. And that they want their tribal leader to their chieftain to defeat the uh, nearby chieftain. Um, uh, so yeah, that's what's going on. It's it's group membership um, that people aren't apathetic about. So a lot of people got out there and they voted for Biden because they just didn't like Trump. And it, there are enough of those voters that Biden was able to get further ahead of where Hillary Clinton was by you know two points or so, and maybe about one percent in the swing states. Um, you know, to eke out the win. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people vote for negative reasons that they don't like the other party leader. Right, uh, right. So that's interesting when you talk about apathy in the sense that we don't want to understand the issues, but not apathy in, in the sense that we still have an opinion and we want that person to win. Because one thing I will say is the listener of this show is is probably on the, the very far end in terms of um, they, they are not apathetic. I mean, yeah. why would you listen to a show every other week on various topics just to expand your viewpoint? Right. Yeah. It's it's seemingly uh, for those listening, myself included, you know, that's crazy to me. Like, yeah. I'll get into how I try to stay up to date, but I actively go out of my way to learn the opposite side before I even formulate my own opinion. So, like, if I hear something, I will go, OK, who would argue against me and what are they saying? And one of the things that I'm um, curious about is, is a lot of the reason people don't care about the issues because they believe that not much gets done anyway. You know, th that seems like an easy argument, which is like, why would I spend so much time trying to figure it out when most of these politicians don't do 90 percent of the stuff they say in the first place? That's one source of apathy. The also having a very large country with a lot of voters, you know, people just think even if I did study up, it would be not, you know, it wouldn't do a whole lot of good. Also, when people have low trust in government, um, they're less likely to, you know, in general, they're just they're more apathetic because they don't think the government's going to do the right thing, even if they participate. Mm -hmm. So I think lower trust in government, um, larger populations institutions that make it feel like people's votes don't matter, like our first past the post rules, like, you know, if someone wins 51% of the vote, they get the office. Whereas in most um, democracies, you know, people vote for parties. And if a party gets 30% of the vote, they get 30% of the seats in parliament. So there's like a reason for people to develop more refined preferences. So because, you know, their votes would matter more, because even if they didn't get didn't contribute to the group that has the most votes, 
they maybe contributed to the group that gets the second or third most votes. And then that will really actually matter. Mm, that's a good point, which kind of brings us to one of the things at the forefront now is this looking at the electoral college. Yeah. Look, I'll just tell you my opinion, and then you can tell me from your much more learned opinion. Uh, it seems like an outdated process. It seems like the the cracks in that system have been exposed, especially recently. Yeah. Um, and it seems like the answer is far more in line with what you're talking about, which are governments that exist, right? Which give us more options. They give us more of that nuance. Where do you fall on this issue? Um, so I guess there's a lot to say. I mean, first of all, the Electoral College never functioned like the founders intended it to, mm. because the way it was supposed to function was that people they knew most people wouldn't know that much about politics. So they were supposed to elect an elector, someone they trusted from their community to get together with other electors to choose the president. It was not a democratic institution. It was a small R Republican institution. The people have input but there's heavy reliance on expertise. But they didn't see that parties would develop. And indeed, they didn't foresee that they would found those parties. <laughs> um, so what has the Electoral College ever been good for? Well, um, if it's been good for anything, it's been good for the same reason Senate apportionment is good, is that you can protect minority political cultures and minority political unities against very large states. Now, the difficulty is that you actually give the individual voters in those states way more power the average voter in Wyoming has way more influence on outcomes than the average voter in California by orders of magnitude. Um, so on the one hand, it seems like it would be fairer to, and I mean, more populous states get more electoral votes. It's just that every state gets three because you get two senators and a congressperson. So that, right. that's the three of your electors. Mm -hmm. But even with that, the small states punch above their weight. Um, so if you, if you think it's really important to protect the heartland from the policies that California and New York want, you're going to be more sympathetic to the Electoral College. If you're more of a everybody's vote should matter equally. And if that means that some of the cultures in the United States uh, rule some of the others, then that's just the price we pay for equality. Um, but I think the thing that if you look at the right, they're saying is like, look, we're in the rural countryside now. And, you know, the California and New York elites hate us. And so if we get rid of the Electoral College, our political power will be sharply diminished. They don't respect us. They don't like us. They think we're idiots. So we need protection. Um, and if that means having minoritarian rule, you know, with, you know, then we have, you know, otherwise we face extinction. I mean, that's polarized thinking, black and white right. thinking. But I think that's what's going on. Why so, would we? Yeah. Why would we? And I didn't mean to cut you off, but it's like, why would we place an emphasis on an ideology that is in the minority. Like, so you mentioned the, the heartland. Why would we create a structure that, that provides um, unequal voice to a, a certain group simply because they are uh, different? You know, I, I don't understand that. Well, you know, some Democrats have engaged in gerrymandering such that African-Americans can uh, punch above their weight in terms of their numbers. Mm. And if you think about it from that perspective, um, it starts to make a little bit more sense because you might think that given the kind of attitudes of people uh, in the white majority, you would want um, uh, black Americans to be able to have a kind of political, you know, political, extra political power as a bulwark against um, attacks from the majority. So I think there are some times where we think, OK, well, I mean, if the average black voter has more influence than the average white voter, um, you know, that's probably going to produce the best outcomes, um, um, particularly that the black population is shrinking um, and relative uh, as is the white uh, population. Mm -hmm. So and in, there are other countries where, you know, you have different provinces like in Canada where there are there are you know protections from the larger provinces just stomping all over the smaller provinces. Um, but in, in Canada, there's a little bit more cultural distinctiveness between the states, uh, the provinces, than there are uh, in the U.S., right? The, the, the Quebec-Ontario differences are, I think, more significant than the differences between, you know, Utah and California. Uh, but there still are really striking, really striking differences. So, so you know, it, it's like more equality between groups, 
um, rather than equality between people. But I'm not defending the Electoral College. I think both of these are reasonable principles. In fact, that's why the founders gave us a bicameral legislature, because the Senate was supposed to protect the cultures and the House was supposed to protect the people. So they tried to have both principles combined. The difficulty is that um, as the GOP and the Democrats have aligned along the, the urban-rural axis, the Republicans have increasingly governed fewer and fewer people, and they don't want to lose that you know, political power. Um, so you know, that's, that's created per perverse incentives. So I do think we need some certain kinds of, of reforms um, that seem to me reasonable, that were already good ideas anyway, like giving uh, statehood to, to D.C., and now let's take a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and more like original entertainment and now podcasts. And recently, Audible just launched their newest plan, Audible Plus. With Audible Plus, you get full access to the Plus catalog, which is filled with thousands and thousands of select originals, audiobooks, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of popular shows, as well as exclusive series. Audible Plus connects you with tons of content that entertains, inspires, and informs. It's easy to find just the right listen, whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness. And with everything you want to listen to all in one app, Audible Plus can truly become your playlist for life. Now is the best time to try Audible Plus because with their holiday offer, you're getting the best offer of the year. Sign up for only $4.95 a month for your first six months. And then after your first six months, it's still only $7.95 a month to download and stream thousands of all-you-can-listen audiobooks, originals, and podcasts included in the Audible Plus plan. So to take advantage of the $4.95 a month for your first six months special, head over to audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500. Again, that's audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500. And now back to the episode. You mentioned something there that I actually don't think I know the answer to, which is what... What distinguishes the urban ideology from the rural ideology, right? And then why do they align more Democratic and then, you know, the rural Republican? We don't know all the reasons yet. Um, there's still a lot of work being done. Um, one difference between urban and rural environments is that in urban environments, you encounter a lot more difference than you do in rural areas. Mm -hmm. And so people in cities tend to be more cosmopolitan in the sense that they aren't going to, you know, be particularly excited to champion their own uh, group and traditions. Well, except for the tradition of social justice, but that's, that's a newer thing. Um, but um, so, you know, you get a little more like cosmopolitan rather than nationalistic attitudes. That's one difference. Governments oftentimes do a lot more in cities. Um, and it seems like government needs to do more to create order when so many people are so close to each other. And so people in cities, I think, tend to be friendlier to larger government because they live with it. Um, obviously, there are other things that, that matter a lot, but one is religion, uh, religious differences that the rural areas, tend, the whites in rural areas tend to be more religious than whites in urban centers. Um, mm -hmm. with, with black Americans, I'm not sure there's an urban rural divide. Um, so, you know, that creates a lot of differences, religious differences, like differences over abortion, um, differences over LGBT issues. Um, differences on religious liberty issues. So those are the ways in which I think urban and rural environments create different kinds of political attitudes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the Republicans, you know, they, they used to be seen as kind of the party of the country club and the upper crust. And yeah. now that's the Dems, you know, like it's mm -hmm. just, it's just flipped. So, um, and what people are talking about, Rubio was just talking about yesterday, Mark, Senator Marco Rubio was, um, you know, they trying to build on Trump's uh, electoral base without the Trumpism. I mean, he hasn't quite made that point, the second point yet. But, you know, because Trump got more minority votes than any can Republican candidate since 1960, the question is whether the GOP can become a multi-racial workers party. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in which case they would lean in to the not to the anti-elitism in a kind of really systematic way. They would seed certain kinds of highly educated voters, but and they would but with the ability to shed the accusations of racism because the accusations of racism in the Republican Party are at least partly belied by the fact that lots and lots of minorities were prepared to vote uh, for Trump, despite everything in the news, uh, despite all the media saying this stuff. A lot of people just think, look, I think a lot of people just think, well, you know, he's racist, but I need to get out of the house. So I don't want the lockdown. So I guess I'm going to vote for him. Um, You know, the elite left kind of places a priority on eliminating racism. They place far more weight on eliminating racism as a, as a political issue than most people do because the elite left is very, very wealthy, very highly educated. So they have spectacular amounts of privilege and they oftentimes feel guilty about that privilege, which they see very clearly and they want to correct it. Right. Whereas the average person is just does not feel especially privileged. You know, most people do not think that they're privileged. Um, And they're so they worry about more bread and butter issues. So if a politician, you know, pisses off the elite left, um, but is good on the bread and butter issues and, um, you know, uh, don't let the elite make fun of you. I mean, I think that's a winning strategy. I expect Republican candidates to start to lean more into attacks on the university system, particularly the elite institutions, you know, maybe taxing Harvard's endowment um, or, ta- you know, or um, just uh, in general, um, uh, really going after big tech, like legislation to um, break them up. Because now Republicans are really starting to understand at a very deep level the dangers of concentrations of corporate power. Um, because the corporate culture has gone towards the left over the last five years in particular. Right. Um, and the reverse insight actually has been lost on the left. I mean, you know, there's so much complaint about money in politics, but this election, you had Bloomberg pour all this money in to no effect. Yeah. And then the Democrats outspent the Republicans two to one, and no one was complaining about money in politics this uh, cycle. Mm. So, you know, I, I wonder if the left just doesn't stop caring because they want that sweet Zuckerberg money. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think there, we're undergoing a shift um, uh, in, in various respects that I think will lead to new electoral coalitions. But um, one of the reasons that um, at least, well, there's some interesting research that just came out yesterday on Vox that I just learned about, about how um, Republicans, the average Republican is lower in social trust than the average Democrat. Mm-hmm. And that that shapes a lot of their um, political uh, behavior. So, for instance, it looks like it's one reason Republicans are less likely to talk to pollsters on the phone. Yeah. Um, which is one of the explanations of why the polls were so far off in a systematic way towards the Democrats. Yeah. Um, because, you know, someone who's low trust is like less likely to talk to most people about things. If you ask them directly what their view is, they'll tell you. But, you know, it, it, if it's just a pollster or someone or someone from the media, they just think, no, you know, these people these people are bad and I can't trust them. I'm going to do something else. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, we may be entering a case where not only there's less social trust, but it's polarized distrust. Mm -hmm. And one of the the things that will mean is that Republicans will be more likely to violate democratic procedures, because if you don't trust someone and you're playing a competitive game with them, you're not going to think they're going to play by the rules. So why should you, right? If you're low trust, it's like, why would I not nominate Amy Coney Barrett? They would, the Democrats would do the same to us. And we don't want to be suckers. We're going to take advantage while we can. Yeah, it's it's first of all, it's funny you mentioned Amy Cohen Barrett because um, I actually have a question for you submitted from one of our supporters. So I, I want to ask you and specifically on that. But before we get into that, a couple of things you said there. One, you know, every now and then I get this and the listeners know a goosebumps moment and I can't control it. It's just something visceral where a guest says something that just hits me so deeply. And you said something there that we cannot we cannot rush past, which is. When you were talking about racism and you yeah. said, you know, uh, maybe the Democrats and, and you can say it more eloquently, but Democrats and the elites especially um, have have achieved this level where they feel guilty. And, yeah. and so that is why they're so, quote unquote, anti-racist, whereas Republicans just feel like, well, it doesn't exist. Look, I'm struggling, too. And yeah. I overgeneralize and not all Republicans, but it, it's that's a fascinating idea because. Um, let me just walk you through something. Okay. My, yeah. my dad was what anyone would define as really poor growing up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 10 people in his family in a two bedroom, maybe three bedroom, probably 800 square foot 
Uh, they had a tub, no shower. They had one bathroom. Yeah. I mean, like dad, his, his dad was a, like a, um, like a construction worker. Mom didn't work, etc. Okay. Um, by most means, almost every child in his family, sibling, um, of his, uh, achieved some amount of success. And then I'm a byproduct of that. So I feel extremely privileged, right? Like I definitely feel like born on, you know, I don't know if third, but second to some extent. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder like, did that shape, does that shape me? Do I feel guilt? Because, uh, I don't outwardly feel guilty, but, but maybe it's not that outward identity. And then also, you know, how, should, should I, uh, based on the fact that my dad, so a direct lineage, like worked hard to get out of that. It's just a, that's like a, so deep. You could spend a, a, a lifetime just studying that idea of, uh, guilt and how that impacts your belief specifically on something like racism or those less than, and then do you feel like you have to give back because of that? It's so insane. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's a very fascinating thing. What the, one of the more curious things to me about American elites um, is um, that they're one of the only elite classes in the world that actually is ashamed of itself. Mm. Um, so, you know, elite people in India or China or Russia, they're not they're not thinking we're oppressors and, you know, we need to we're bad and we need to do better. Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon um, of of this kind of guilt at, uh, uh, privilege, um, among American elites, but it's also the case that they recognize a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, elites and that are generally left leaning, um, that it's just true that they're very privileged, right. That they went to, you know, Harvard or Yale or something along those lines, you know, and that they have a PhD and, you know, maybe or most people don't, or they have way more influence and most people don't. Um, and so they think, okay, you know, we need to, we need to give back in some way just because it seems glaringly obvious. But, um, the other element is just that they have this very strong belief in social equality, um, which is lacking in lots of, a lot of the world. And that's, I think what makes, you know, you have to add in there to get the, the guilt, but yeah, it's not that most people don't like equality. It's just that most people are focused on things that are more concrete to them and less on ideology, more on jobs. That's exactly what I was going to say. It was like, how could anybody argue, at least in the U.S., about equality, like equality yeah. matters? And I feel like most wouldn't. But you highlighted, again, something which I have really tried to understand. And, and by the way, I think I was insinuating that I was elite. And then when we talk about uh, PhDs and, and Harvard and all this, definitely not there. So I just yeah. want to clarify. But um, <laughs> I mean, like, I had financial help, you know. Yeah, growing. yeah, yeah. Um, anyways. You know, one thing we had a guest on, um, her name was Jill. I can't remember her last name. She wrote a book called white working class changed mm -hmm. my opinion. And it's this idea, essentially long story short that like, you know, if you are kind of getting by, right, you're in that lower middle class, regardless of race, all these things, you really can't focus on much other than your day to day. Yeah. Therefore, these ideological things become less important, which then appeals to the more, I think, Republican messaging is kind of yeah. what we're saying here. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's I think that's plausible. I mean, identity politics is not just a thing on the left. It's also a thing on the right. And, you know, people do vote based on their identities uh, and they do think in terms of their identities. But when you get really poor, then oftentimes those kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, tribal allegiances become less important. Mm. Um, um, so people will vote on basic different factors, but as the United States becomes wealthier and wealthier, you know, I think we'll like, we'll see an expansion of people voting based on, uh, on ideology alone. Right. Yeah. Cause that, cause we can kind of step up that, uh, Maslow's hierarchy to some like, extent. Precisely. Right? And in fact, that's a lot of what's, what's going on is uh, actually the, the, um, coastal elites are becoming rich very, very fast. Mm. Um, and compared to, um, this sort of Trump base, which is becoming in some ways poorer, mm. um, at least some of them. Now there are a lot of, you know, decent middle income and high income people, very high income people that were for Trump. I don't want to exaggerate it. Sure. Um, but, um, but the richest people in the country, the very richest people and the very most influential people in the country tend to be on the left. Right. Um, 
So, you know, there are a lot of very poor people that vote Democrat, right, that are in minority populations in particular. Mm -hmm. But the very most powerful people tend to be on the left. Let me tell you a thought that I'm embarrassed to admit, but in 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 uh, line with this podcast, the reason we've always done it is to recognize our bias, recognize what we don't know and try to get better through information. That's the whole thing. So, yeah, a thought that has, you know, um, been in my head at times is I wonder if the reason why most media leans left, most elitist lean left, most educated people lean left. Most rich people lean left, the list goes on and on, is because the left is actually uh, the better place to be. I mean, plain and simple. How do you feel about that? Well, the difficulty is that the litany of positions that makes one left wing don't actually have real philosophical coherence with one another. Mm. You know, being against uh, foreign intervention, being for abortion, being against guns, being for high taxation. These are all things that could, in principle, come apart, right? You can mix and you know you can mix and max uh, social liberalism with fiscal conservatism and get libertarianism. Um, it's not obvious that fiscal liberalism and social liberalism would have to go together. Um, so the reason I don't think it's the better place to be necessarily is because a lot of the associations between issues are philosophic from a philosophical point of view arbitrary. Um, and so then the question becomes, well, why do these people believe what they believe? And that's a complicated story about how different electoral coalitions make certain issues salient among elites or elites care about, you know, certain issues. They make them salient, but they're not trying to make them consistent. If, you know, you had the smartest people going less around uh, not so much a set of positions, but like a, a pure set of principles and we're defending those those pure principles um against other systems and it was clear that this system of principles was more coherent or more intuitive or something then i'd start to think that yeah well you know these are you know the better place to be rationally speaking but you know also you know the left changes its opinions about stuff a lot and and, and fairly quickly and it's not obvious that it's in response to evidence um right. so for instance you know people on the left got really upset about citizens united but it's not obvious it had any real effect on election outcomes um, because you had more big spending on both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, there's a lot of hostility to what economists have to say on the left and now on the right more too, like openness, you know, economists overwhelmingly support free trade. Um, you know, so I just don't see I think there's I think there actually is some science denialism on the left. Um, really? Yeah. 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 So with respect to things like GMOs, you know, you'll see this, there's some vaccine skepticism on the left. It's bigger on the right. Um, and, um, the, the I think there's some denialism about basic economics, like that you can have a $15 minimum wage with no costs. Um, yeah, that's a really good point, but I, I, I separate economics from science personally. Yeah, I mean, I do not think economics is a science. Ah, uh, yeah, that 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 is what you hear on the left constantly. It's it's oftentimes a way to just like it it, it it's weird. It's it's like to me, to my mind, it's like hearing you know a creationist say, "Yeah, I just don't think biology is a science. That's mostly ideology." Um, I think uh -huh. you know they both satisfy. I mean, yes, there's some ways in which economics can't make predictions in the same way that uh, natural sciences can, but you know. I mean, there's sociology and psychology, and they study these phenomena as well. And no one's saying psychology is in the science, you know. No hmm. one's saying sociology is in the science. But um, the other thing, though, uh, and this may, you know, make things a little more red hot, which is the um, the denialism about genetics affecting certain kinds of social outcomes. Now, wait, tell me, explain that. Um, so the idea that Intelli you know, uh, inborn intelligence, native IQ or something like that determines certain kinds of outcomes. Now, I'm not I'm not someone who's, you know, really far into this, um, but the unwillingness to entertain that genetic differences make a difference in how people live together and act. I think that's the most kind of severe uh, science denialism. Um, now, I'm not saying if you started to accept genetic explanations for things, you would become right wing. I actually think that's false. Um so, you know, suppose, for instance, it turns out that working hard is a, uh, a, a hardwired trait such that people are going to work hard, even if they're not 
making a lot of money. They're just hard workers. In that case, a progressive tax rate isn't going to hurt economic growth because the people are going to work as hard as they would work otherwise. Right. Um, so, you know, it's easier to justify redistribution. So like sometimes saying, OK, this trade is like pretty ingrained. We also know and I think the evidence is just clear that when it comes to personality traits like the big five, they're they're highly heritable, about 60 percent heritable. Mm -hmm. Um IQ is um, less heritable. Maybe about half of IQ seems heritable. The rest is like noise and randomness and uh, and somewhat upbringing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there are many, you know, and but saying about half is genetic. I mean, that's <laughs> that's not going to get you in the <laughs> direction of like some kind of crazy racist view. It's just a kind of science denialism that I find on the left. They all leftists all, always want to explain outcomes in terms of institutions. Um, so, yeah, I think there's uh, quite a bit of um, science nihilism on the left, which is another reason I don't think it's a the more rational uh, place to be necessarily. Now, it may be more rational than the right, but you can actually do a lot of work to sort of show that a lot of right wing positions may have some kind of internal coherence. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you can do some work. And now there are and then there actually are coherent ideologues on the right that are actually obsessed with coherence. And that's libertarians. Um and uh, in that case, you may think, OK, well, and libertarians are fond of pointing out that as people get more educated, they become more socially liberal, but they also become more fiscally conservative mm -hmm. because arguments for markets are oftentimes complex and counterintuitive, just like arguments for like more sophisticated theories in physics. Like people just have these kind of folk views about how things work and yeah. that are in incorrect, like that, you know, free trade, uh, particularly like about the, the benefits of free trade. So I guess my view is that no place on our political spectrum is especially rationally privileged in itself. Um, but I do think there are reasons that, you know, more intelligent people gravitate towards the left. But I'd explain that in terms of things like, um, you know, status hierarchies, like that there are people at the top of status hierarchies that tend to be on the left. And so a lot of people who want to be high status just mimic those opinions. Let's take a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. I got my first cell phone with one of the big wireless providers mm, 20, 25 years ago. And I've honestly hated my monthly bill ever since. But then I discovered there's another option that could give me the premium service I'm used to at a fraction of the cost. I could cut my wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month and save hundreds of dollars by switching to Mint Mobile. For anyone out there who's looking to save without sacrificing service, switching to Mint Mobile is a no-brainer. For customers that hate their wireless bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile can pass significant savings on to you. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile today and get premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com smart. That's mintmobile.com smart. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't have the answer. That's why I ask it. And I don't necessarily yeah. believe it. It's just the thought that I've I've had at times. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things. Man, I could talk to you forever. One of the <laughs> things we talked about earlier, I've wondered for a long time, is uh, it's my belief that the Founding Fathers' view was that people in general weren't that intelligent, like the general population. So we need the elitist to make the decisions for us. And although some of the verbiage sounds like that's not the case, right? Like all men are created equal. They didn't actually embody that. Um, my question is, one, is that true? And two, did they believe or was their vision that the elites would make the decisions because they have the, they're more intelligent? They were to on the left of the political spectrum of their time. There was no major socialist movement. Many of them were indeed slave owners, but there are many that were not. And those that were oftentimes thought that slavery had to end, but it just we couldn't have a constitution unless it did end. And um, I, the, the way I think about it, uh, them, 
is that uh, they were anti-aristocrat, right? The constitution, you can't grant titles of nobility, mm -hmm. right? They did constantly affirm a belief in popular sovereignty that the authority of government ultimately comes from the people, but they wanted it to be filtered through complex institutions. And But one of the reasons for this is they wanted democratic change to be informed. So people couldn't just change all the laws immediately because, you know, they to make a big change, they need to have time to think. Another thing is, you know, you want some popular sovereignty by electing people that represent the public who actually have the time to think these things and the wisdom to think these things through. It's not elitism so much as there being a class of people that's better. It's just that most people don't have time to focus on the issues. And so they voluntarily choose an expert that is their representative. Right. And right. we still have that. We don't think having representative democracy is like anti, you know, egalitarian. So I think in that sense, they were egalitarians. Um but they also were li more libertarian than we are. And so they tended to think um, than, than Americans are now. And so they tended to think the stuff the legislatures would produce would be bad. And so they made it harder to pass laws. But that's not an anti. That's not an elitist attitude, right? It's like, yeah, even the elites are going to produce bad, bad policy. So let's just make uh, it hard to pass new laws. So, yeah, I think there's some inegalitarianism among these folks, but a lot of them are really influenced by Locke. And of course, you know, Locke's a blank slate guy, you know, thinking that, you know, our differences, our mental differences come primarily from the environment that we're raised in. Uh, mm -hmm. Adam Smith, who very much influenced them, you know, Wealth of Nation comes out in 1776 as well. Um, he was a big blank slate guy in, lo in lots of respects. Um, so the, they aren't thinking, a lot of them are thinking, yeah, a lot of differences are environmental. Um, and that tends to lead towards more egalitarian views. Um, but, you know, so, I mean, I, I think they were less elitist than almost all other than almost all European elites. Sure. Yes. Uh, or and, the and 18th I, century. Yeah, I definitely wasn't even calling them. Elite. I was actually more wondering if did they believe kind of what you were talking about earlier? We should place more power in the hands of the few, in, in, you know, which would almost be counter to what we often parrot today, which is very egalitarian. Yeah, the thought would be is that in, in the founders thought that there could be genuine political expertise. Yes. And they thought that when people recognized that there was political expertise because they were able to choose, that they would freely and democratically choose political experts to make their decision. That was their their rosy optimism. Right. Um. But what they didn't realize is that the voting rules they chose created really powerful incentives to form parties. And once you have parties, that does kind of get in the way of expertise in certain kinds of respects, because you create this kind of like cacophonous group of people that are really politically ambitious. Whereas, you know, the electors, it would be a little bit more like, you know, uh, Plato's Republic in which, you know, you would the, the philosophers would rule, but not because they wanted to, but because they were wise. So the thought, you know, and that's absurd, but um, but <laughs> the the idea I think they had was that they could try to get a little bit of that careful deliberation by designing the Constitution in a certain way. Um, but, you know, it just didn't work out like they predicted. Now, of course, another thing about them is that they didn't, you know, revere the, do the Constitution like we do, um, because they did often expect that people would would create new ones over time for new circumstances. Well, wait a second. Um, this, and this is the, the bomb that we're dropping here, because yeah. partly I want to ask this because I'm, I get so confused on like we're willing to make progress, really rapid progress on so many things, except what we were founded on, it feels like. Yeah. And, yeah. and that seems like prove me wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. But that seems asinine. If It seems like it'd be so much better if we said we are going to adapt. Our, or the way we live in our society and our constitution and everything we believe in the same way we adapt our medicine and our technology. What do you think? Um, so I actually agree in principle. The difficulty is the people who revere the constitution partly revere it for instrumental reasons. They think it still produces good outcomes because they're more conservative and libertarian. And so they think that it shouldn't, it shouldn't be easy to legislate. Um, so they defend the constitution on the grounds that it tends to give them they don't often say this, but it tends to get them the um, outcomes they like. If it were the case that most people in the country thought that the Constitution was itself was producing bad outcomes, um, then I think there would be some support for, for altering it. Um, but it, in general, you can see if you look at state constitutions where it's almost always much easier to amend the Constitution, mm -hmm. it happens quite a bit. 
Um, and, you know, I think the country would look different in a variety of ways if you could amend the Constitution. That said, there are not gigantic differences of opinions across different democracies. You have right parties, you have left parties. The main difference is that most of them tend to be more secular than the United States um, and that they tend to be a bit less free market than the United States in some respects. So slightly large, you have somewhat larger welfare states, somewhat less religious populations. The parties reflect that, but you've got tons of populist parties, tons of populist governments, lots of hostility to immigration. You do have socially conservative parties that sometimes ascend to power. Um, you have free market parties that can have power. I mean, so you see a lot of the same cleavages in the U.S. that you see in Europe. And so that suggests that our electoral system may not be the main determinant of our politics. Um um, like people think. So I think it's hard to know how different things would be if we had more straightforwardly majoritarian institutions with just one person, one vote, and then the majority wins. Right. Man, I could talk to you for hours. All right. We got 10 minutes left. I've got two, uh, two kind of um, things I want to cover. One is I want to make sure I ask this question, submitted from one of our Patreon supporters, which was in line with what you were talking about earlier. I think it flows perfectly. And And this person said, how can an individual trust the federal government when rules are not applied fairly? And the example is not allowing the Merrick Garland nomination to proceed during an election year, but confirming Amy Coney Barrett days before an election. Yeah. So first of all, we're talking about informal norms, not the formal norms of the Constitution. But Correct. the informal norms matter a great deal for trust as well. In fact, I think most of our trust in other people comes from them following informal norms rather than following the law. Mm. Um, so just to point that out, but to grant to the, 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 the questioner, this, this, this importance of informal norms, the, the extreme importance of them, um, it doesn't make sense to trust someone when they're not trustworthy. So what I don't do in the book is ask people to just trust each other, no matter what, what you have to do is re is make policy changes that incentivize trustworthy behavior. And only then is trust going to make sense and even be stable. If you tell, trust these people but you don't think they're trustworthy, it's like impossible to do it, right? So you, and, and if it turns out that someone says, oh, they really are trustworthy, and then you find out they aren't, then your trust may be lower than ever before, right? Because you've been deceived. So the way you start rebuilding trust is you have to rebuild trustworthiness and you rebuild trustworthiness at the policy level, at the governmental level, by pursuing bipartisan policies that are trust conducive. And that's a big part of what I talk about in the book. So you're absolutely right. Why trust the untrustworthy? And my answer is you can't, right? And right. with respect to Supreme Court and formal norms, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't trust the GOP either on this. Um, so yeah, you, you need, but you have to make do the hard work of identifying the policy support, uh, policies that will restore trust and then pushing for those policies. So that perfectly lines us up. And this is why I'm like, oh, I, you know, there's such a wealth that we haven't even gotten to discuss because obviously this is such a complex issue. So I just want to spend the last eight or so minutes talking about your book because trust in a polarized age. So without, I, I feel like you know it inside and out. This is your life. Without me asking such pointed questions, tell us a little bit about you know, the, the fundamental theory you propose here, specifically as it relates to polarization, because I think, you know, in my limited viewpoint, that is... Uh, higher now than maybe any time in our history, I guess you can't say that. Since the Civil War. War. Yeah, I was going to say with the Civil War. So, you know, but since then, um, so tell us a little bit about what's going on and how trust plays a role in that. So the basic line early on in the book is that trust and falling trust and polarization are intimately related. Um, that lower trust is causing more polarization and that more polarization is lowering trust of both varieties, social and political trust. And I talk about the different mechanisms. But one of the points that I make is that polarization on its own is not a problem. Like the mere fact that people disagree or that they spend more time with people they agree with is not in itself a problem. Because if we all trusted each other, then we'd be able to agree upon fair procedures to at least temporarily resolve our disputes. Right. Some kind of democratic procedure where, well, we're not going to agree, but we have to make some decisions. So this is how we're going to do it. Really, polarization becomes dangerous and toxic when trust is low. And so if we're, we if we can't end polarization and I'm not sure we should end all of it, because I think it's good for people to have different choices between different points of view in politics, we want to defang it. Right. We want to we, we want to draw its poison. 
And the only way to draw its poison is to pursue policies that can promote trust. Now, the question is, well, which policies? Well, I look into the traditional sort of broadly liberal toolkit, liberal meaning that you have constitutionally protected liberties for individuals and groups that are extensive, right? Freedom of association, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, uh, procedural liberties like a right to a fair trial or a right to vote. So it's that kind of liberalism I'm talking about. And so I go through different kinds of liberal rights practices, in particular, freedom of association, markets, the welfare of state, the rule of law, and elections. And say, look, there are ways of reorganizing or reforming these institutions or using more of these institutions that will restore trust, even probably under polarized conditions. So the thought it, but those are also policies that promote trustworthiness. So it has to go this way. You get the policy, you identify the policies that are trust restoring, um, that are by being trustworthiness restoring. You pass the policies, you get more trustworthiness, you get more trust, you contain polarization. This is not a book that tells you what to do tomorrow. It's written at a higher level of generality than that. What I'm trying to do more than anything is just orient people around the idea that the main thing that we need are policies and constitutional structures that will restore trustworthiness in government and in each other, which will make trust easier to justify. And with a more trusting population, polarization should be less big of an issue. The cool thing is that the institutional tools we need are within the toolkit of liberal democracy. We don't have to go to populism of some kind. We don't have to have a revolution. Um, the reforms of the kinds of things I suggest are, you know, I think feasible. What are some of those things? Leave us with one or two, maybe. Well, the easiest one is just anti-corruption legislation. I mean, legis open corruption is just terrible for both social and political trust. Watergate was devastating for trust in government. Okay, wait, let's pause there. Can you, uh, so Watergate was one, it, what is an example of um, something fairly recent or even right now that would fall under that bucket that we could essentially legislate out? Trump's refusal to divest from his, um, from his companies. And hiring his family members to important okay. political positions. Okay, perfect. Right. I'm yeah. glad you brought that up. Simply for this fact, that seems like a vast majority of people, not everyone, but a majority of people would say, yes, yeah. why don't we do that? Why can't we? Yeah. That, I think that is so much of Americans' frustration is the obvious is still not enforced or done. Yes. Yes. No, I think that's right. You should also like the amount of time between when you leave office and you should be able to get a job in the private sector. I think yeah. should be lengthened considerably. Of if not, course. Yeah. Of course. So, yeah. so these are some obvious solutions. Tell me why they don't happen. And and look, my outsider view is, well, because the powerful want to stay that way. Well, the Democrats passed this bill, uh, the For the People Act in 2019, that included things like automatic voter registration. It did increase the, the time period between going, you know, it, it required divestment. Um, it included stuff about, you know, a two year delay between when you leave the public sector and go into the private sector. Um, the House passed it. And if the Senate end up, ends up Democratic, I assume that the whole thing will pass. Um, but since it's probably not going to, it won't happen. The Republicans mm -hmm. are terrified of uh, automatic voter registration in particular. Um, mm -hmm. Because once you register everybody, you're never going to be able to take it back. Right. Um, people will just get crazy about it. So and then they'll start to lose more elections. Um, okay. Again, this seems like people doing something they know is not right simply for their own gain, which yeah. is, the, I think, the whole loss of trust. Yes, is, that's right. People justify it to themselves because they say the other folks are bad. So I can be bad, too. Okay. Yeah. Now, see, I'm just getting angry towards the end of our interview. Yes. So I think it's a good place, right? One is... Kevin, we're going to find some time, maybe in the distant future, maybe in the near future to have you back on. I've oh, thoroughly enjoyed this. And I think we have, you know, we scratched the surface of the, the foundation, but not really uh, even some of your expertise. The second is you have this book. It is brand new, Trust in a Polarized Age, where if you like what we've been talking about, I mean, uh, imagine the depth you go into there. That said, I want to kind of leave the last minute to you. Anything else like places we can find you, resources, recommendations, ideas? This is kind of your your pulpit here. So um, there's my website, kevinvalier.com. It includes uh, my blog, which I call Re Reconciled. Um, it's kind of theme of all my work. There's a book page there where you can buy Trust in a Polarized Age, or you can get a discount through Oxford um, to get the book for $25. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @kvalier. You can find me as Kevin Valier on Facebook because I have a public profile. Um, hmm. So I'd love to engage you on Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, emails about the book, 
uh, any kind of, you know, public conversation. Uh, I would love to talk to anybody in any forum uh, about these issues because I think they affect uh, all of us. Absolutely. And I know you've piqued a lot of people's interest, regardless of what side you're on. And by the way, I just want to close. Well, I could put this in the, in the intro, but I want to close with, you know, I think that opinion should be held loosely. That's yeah. why we listen to this podcast. And I'm sure you feel the same way. That's why we educate ourselves. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I want this to be one of the things that lowers polarization um, because we come together and have this forum. So, Kevin, I am so thankful of your time. I'm so thankful of your work. We will link to all of the things Kevin just mentioned at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And like I said, I, have, I imagine we'll have Kevin on again in the near future. That'd be great. So Kevin, thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. If you enjoyed that interview with Kevin Vallier, make sure to go check out his book, Trust in a Polarized Age, which is out now wherever books are sold. All right, let's jump into the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're looking for free and easy ways to support the show, just leave us a rating or a review wherever you downloaded the episode. And if you're in a giving spirit this holiday season, you can support us monetarily over at Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, you can stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast by heading over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and signing up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.